Well, if you have your Bible with you this morning, or you can use the Pew Bible, or your phone, or your tablet, or however you want to get it in front of you, that's okay. We're going to continue to look at the Gospel of John this morning. We started that at the beginning of the year, and by God's grace, we're going to spend a year going verse by verse through this really important Gospel account. So remember, if you have no idea where the Gospel of John is, that's okay. It's in the New Testament. If you kind of Fold your Bible in the middle and start heading to the right. You'll get to Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And if you're new to kind of how the Bible's laid out, look for the big two at the top, and then we're going to look at verse 1. And so we're looking at John chapter 2, verses 1 through 12. And as you're turning there this morning, I want you to think about, especially as people are maybe planning Super Bowl parties tonight or other parties that you've had in the past, what is the biggest Southern party faux pas? It's running out of food, isn't it? The biggest southern party faux pas when we have what we like to call a meet and eat is running out of food, right? You never want to run out of food. I'm sure many of us can think about the ways that maybe we have thought that we were about to run out of food and and so we go and we run out to, to Bruce's or Walmart or whatever or get that emergency pizza or that emergency bucket of chicken just in case. You know what I'm talking about. You don't ever want to run out of food at a Southern party. Several years ago, there was a term FOMO that was coined, fear of missing out, to describe what happens when we feel like there might be a social event that's happening. I have severe FOMO most of the time. I'm afraid that y'all are doing something fun and I'm not there. And so, you know, you have that, that FOMO. Some of y'all are like, I don't want anything to do with other people. I like to hide in my house. But that's not me. I have FOMO all the time, fear of missing out. But in 2019, another term was coined, FORO, F-O-R-O, fear of running out. And it was specifically for this reason, fear of running out of food at a party as you be the host or the hostess and you're hosting this party, you're so afraid that your guests are going to not have something to eat. And so you have this FORO, this fear of running out. It is, the, it is every party planner's worst nightmare, inviting guests and then running out of food. You know, you think you go to a wedding or you go to a party or you go to a Super Bowl party or whatever it is. You don't want to run out. Now imagine this happening to you as the host of one of the biggest parties in town. And I want you to kind of just take that feeling of dread that you have in your heart and I want you to transport yourself back to the first century Middle East. Okay, feel that, <gasps> we're about to run out of food. Now, I want you to take that feeling that you have, that feeling of dread, and I want you to go back to the first century in the the ancient Near East. Let me tell you a little something about ancient Near Eastern weddings. This scene that we're about to look at in John 2 takes place in Cana of Galilee, which is a small town north of Nazareth, which it takes place on the third day after the last event that's counted there in your scripture, which is the calling of Nathanael. And weddings in the ancient Near East were a much bigger deal than they are today, which is, that's kind of hard to imagine, But I think when we think it's a big deal in terms of the larger community, for us it's a really big deal for kind of just that family and for that couple. But in the ancient Near East, this was a community event. This was a a public feast for the whole community. And also, many times, the single biggest event in the lives of both the bride and the groom. Even the poorest of families would spend just an incredible amount of money and time and effort to throw this one big party. It was a time where you just kind of went all in. We're going to throw this feast. We're going to invite the whole town. This is going to be great. Hospitality was a huge deal in the ancient Near Eastern culture. And I really think that there's a lot of analogs to that here in our southern culture as well. Hospitality is a big deal in our culture down south, is it not? 
It's a big deal in the ancient Near East. Here's what D.R.E. Carson said. He said, to run out of supplies would be a dreadful embarrassment in a shame culture. There is some evidence that it could also lay the groom open to a lawsuit from aggrieved relatives of the bride. Think about this. If you ran out of food or failed to do the proper hospitality at your party, somebody could take you to court. That sounds fun, doesn't it? Yeah, you might want to check your Super Bowl party supplies. Now, these wedding feasts could last up to a week long. I mean, think about that. This community just party that went on for at least a week. And the most important element that gauged the success of the party was the wine. When it ran out, the party was over. It was kind of like the fuel gauge of the party. Psalm 104, verse 15, the psalmist thanks God for the gift of wine that was given to gladden the heart of man. And we see wine used in the Bible as a sign of feasting and celebration and abundance, right? We hear the word wine and it always goes along with like a feast or joy or abundance. And it's just a part of that kind of picture that we have of like a banqueting table. We've sung about it already. We're going to sing about it, that this great feast. And the Greek word for wine, winos in the New Testament. Now, I'm not going to dwell too hard on this, but I do want to touch it. The Greek word for wine, winos, in the New Testament always refers to fermented wine, not unfermented grape juice. And the Hebrew word yayin also refers to fermented wine. Now, efforts have been made to explain this away, but these explanations, however well-meaning they are, are just not consistent with the original languages, and they're just not consistent with ancient Near Eastern culture. They might be well-meaning in their approach, but when we, what we know about ancient Near Eastern culture and feasting and all that they used, it's unfermented, it's fermented uh, wine. And so what we see here, uh, well, we see the, the, same, the same Greek word, excuse me, is used in Ephesians 5.18 when Paul warns against drunkenness, again, denoting fermented wine, not juice, and stressing its proper use in moderation and with self-control. And it's true, many, some people have argued that ancient wine may not have been as strong as today's wine. There's debate about that. But the principle still holds true, and the word still means the same thing, fermented wine. And so what we see here in this scene that we're about to read is a potential social disaster because the wine runs out way, way, way too early, and the family faces public humiliation and a shame and honor culture and possibly a lawsuit. Okay? What we see is this is a big deal. Now, the question that I want you to ask as we go through this is, why would Jesus choose to inaugurate his ministry with this particular sign? I mean, it seems so insignificant on the surface. He's using his divine power to help a, a family save face in a social disaster. We're asking, why in the world would Jesus inaugurate his public ministry in this way with this particular sign or miracle? Okay, so with that in your mind, Let's go look at the text, okay? John chapter 2, verses 1 through 12. Let's give attention to the reading of God's Word. I'll be reading from the ESV. Whatever you have is okay. On the third day, there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. And Jesus also was invited to the wedding with his disciples, and when the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, They have no wine. And Jesus said to her, Woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, Do whatever he tells you. Now there were six stone water jars there for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. And Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water. And they filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, now draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. And so they took it. And when the master of the feast tasted the water now become wine and did not know where it came from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew, 
The master of the feast called the bridegroom and said to him, Everyone serves the good wine first, and when people have drunk freely, then the poor wine. But you have kept the good wine until now. This, the first of his signs, Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory and his disciples and believed in him. After this, he went down to Capernaum with his mother and his brothers and his disciples, and they stayed there for a few days. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of the Lord stands forever. I'm thankful for that, and I hope you are as well. Let's pray and ask the Lord's help as we look to this text. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we do pray and ask that you would speak to us this morning as we look to your word. Help us to receive it with gladness. Help, it, help us to receive it with humility. Speak to our hearts, O Lord. Comfort us. Lord, convict us as you see fit. Lord, we ask that you would meet us here, and we pray these things humbly in Christ's precious name. Amen. So we think about why would Jesus choose to inaugurate his ministry in this way with this sign or this miracle of changing water into wine. One commentator that I read, I actually thought it was really interesting, said this actually helps prove the validity of the Bible because if humans were writing this, they, they would have never let the hero of the story start this way. I mean, you think you would have started with a way cooler miracle rather than just kind of this hyper-local changing water to wine thing? They say in many ways that kind of helps prove the validity of the Bible because if this was just written as like a, a hero story or, a, pharaoh, or a, you know, a fairy tale or whatever, you would never start with the hero like this. Now the key to understanding this event is verse 11. That's the key to this, to understanding this whole event. And let's reread that together, verse 11. It says, now this is the first of his signs Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory and his disciples believed in him says, this is the first of his signs. That's an important word. And notice that it is called a sign. Here's what Tim Keller said. He has a really helpful little book called Encounters with Jesus, where he looks at these various things. He had one on this particular passage. I'm going to quote from him a couple of times because it was helpful. Here's what Keller said. This was not called merely a miracle, but a sign. A sign is a symbol or signifier of something else. Jesus did not have to exercise his power in this situation, but he did. And when he chose to do so, it became the first of his signs through which he revealed his glory, his true identity to others. And the fact that he did it this way is full of interest. So when you think about if this sign that we are seeing acts as a signpost that points forward to something else, hopefully you'll see it change. this changes the way we look at this event. If it is a signpost pointing forward, we have to, it changes the way we look at it. And so the big question that we're going to ask this morning is, how does this miracle reveal the glory of Christ and point to what he came to do? We're going to see two points. Number one, what he did. And then number two, what it ultimately points to. Okay, so what he did and then what it ultimately points to. So let's look at that first point if you're a note-taking type of person, what he did. Look at verses 1 and 2. where We see Jesus and his mother Mary and the disciples we met in chapter 1 are with him. And this suggests that this was probably a wedding for a relative or close family friend. Also, some commentators thought that Mary was probably part of the planning of this because you'll notice that she tells the servants what to do. She looks at the servants and says, do what he tells them to do, which means that she had probably had something to play in this. And so in verse 3, recognizing the social disaster that's about to happen, Mary comes to Jesus and says, they have no wine. And she's asking Jesus to help. Ancient Jewish tradition about this passage suggests that Joseph had died by this point in Jesus' life. Jesus was 30, around 30 at this time. 
And Mary had had to lean on her firstborn son for help and support. Now keep in mind, Mary had not forgotten that Jesus was the Messiah. You don't really forget the whole, you know, angels thing and the virgin birth and all that. That's not something you just kind of forget. Okay, she remembered that Jesus was the Messiah. But she had also, you know, in a very real worldly sense, her husband had probably died. And so Jesus was helping support the family by working as a carpenter. That's why I just love the scripture. You see the humanity and the divinity kind of together, and it happens in real space and time. And what you see here in verse 4 is Jesus responds to his mother in a really unique way. You may have picked up on this when we read. He calls her woman. Okay, now we think, oh, the nerve of that that kid to talk to his mama that way, right? Right? Here's what Kent Hughes said. He said, although it sounds harsh to our ear, he was actually making a courteous remark. He addressed her as woman again when he was on the cross and was tenderly giving Mary to John's care. Now, in Southern speak, I also heard a few commentators, in Southern speak, what Jesus is doing here is calling Mary ma'am. Ma'am? That's what he's saying. It's not this rude woman. It's ma'am. Okay? Now, This is interesting in the life of Jesus, and other commentators talked about this because we see that this is the shift where Jesus is emphasizing that Mary must now think less of him as her son and more of him as her savior. That there's this shift that happens when he calls her ma'am. He doesn't call her mama, ma'am. And notice what he says, my hour has not yet come. He's noticing that there is now a difference. There's a shift in this relationship that's happened. But the second half of this verse gives us the clue that something more is going on. Jesus asks, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. Now, we'll circle back to that in our second point, okay? So hang tight. But let's keep going in the narrative. Mary, in verse 5, trusting that her son Jesus would still come up with something, tells the servants to follow his lead. Okay, so again, this suggests that she had something to do with the party because the servants knew who she was. He says, listen to him. He'll figure it out. Okay? And what we see here is Jesus reveals his glory as the divine Son of God. And look at verses 6 and 7. We're told that six stone water jugs were, uh, water jars were there that were used for the Jewish rites of purification. We're going to get to that in our second point. Hang tight. And we assume that they were mostly empty because Jesus asked for them to be filled up to the brim. Now, filling up to the brim is important because what it means is, you know how when you get a cup of coffee and you ask for a little room for cream, you can add something else in it? This up to the brim means that there's no way that anything else could have been added to this. It was all the way up to the top. Okay, that's an important detail. Now, in verse 8, Jesus then asked the servants to take some to the master of the feast. Now, who is this guy? Who's this master of the feast? Think of this guy like the party planner or the cruise director. This guy was actually hired by families in the, in the ancient Near East. It's kind of like a master of ceremonies. He was the guy that you hired when you had this big, huge party. He was like, well, let's do this. Now let's do this. Now let's do this. It was his job to keep the party going. That was his job. Sounds like a fun job, doesn't it? Some of you, you're like, that sounds like the worst job ever. For me, I'm like, that sounds like a great job. It's like, let's play this, and now let's do this, and now we're going to do this. And so what happens, the thing that I want you to realize about this is this guy had been to his fair share of weddings. Okay, This guy knew what wine at weddings was all about. This, this wasn't this guy's first rodeo. He was professionally hired to keep the party going. And he, he had been to a few of these. And so what happens is when we see uh, Jesus, when we see these servants bring the master of the feast in verse 9, this wine 
When the guy tasted this wine that was brought to him, he immediately knew that this was very special stuff. It was vastly superior in its strength and flavor. It was undiluted. It was the real deal. You know, remember, this guy went to weddings all the time. And so he gets this. He's like, man, this is real. This is good stuff. This is the good stuff. Now, how do you think that this wine was brought to him? Okay, you've got a, they probably didn't pick one of these huge stone jars up, right? Probably what they did was they took a cup, right? And they probably dipped it in there and then brought it to him, okay? I want you to hold that image of this being brought in a cup to him. I want you to hold on to that for later, okay? Now, verse 10 gives us a little bit of insight into the culture of the day. And let's reread this verse again. Let's look at verse 10. Oh, let's read verse 9. And when the master of the feast tasted the water now become wine, and did not know where it came from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew, the master of the feast called the bridegroom and said to him, Everyone serves the good wine first, and when the people have drunk freely, then the poor wine. But you've kept the good wine until now. And so we think about what's going on here. Apparently the quality stuff was served early so that people would remember it. But after the guests had enjoyed themselves for a few days, the cheap stuff would be served. Because at that point you would need quantity to keep the celebration going. But what Jesus did is flip everything on its head. First you would start with, with quality and then you would just go to quantity. And so now quality is coming out. And the master of the feast goes because it's so different. He goes to the bridegroom and he goes, man... I've never seen it done like this, that you're bringing out the good stuff now. And I want you to notice, okay, a lot of times we get just caught up in the fact that the word wine's there, and so we just dismiss this, but I want you to notice here, who gets all the credit for this seemingly hidden miracle? Who gets the credit for it? The groom, doesn't he? The groom. The, the master of the feast goes to the groom and is like, wow, I've never seen this before. What is the deal here? You see that Jesus does the work. The groom gets the credit. Does that sound familiar to you? Hmm? In verse 11, we're reminded that this was the first of Jesus' signs in which his glory, his true identity as the divine Son of God was manifested, and that his, when his disciples, they saw what he had done, it had an impact on them, and they believed in him all the more, like this guy is the real deal. And then you see that after the wedding is over, they go down to Capernaum, and we're going to pick up on that next week. Okay, so that's what he did. That's just following the narrative straight through. Now, second point, what does it ultimately point to? Okay, this is where the rubber hits the road. So what he did in the first point, what it ultimately points to is the second point. Let's look at that. Now, many folks, like I've said before, read this narrative and get so hung up on the use of the word wine that they miss the whole point of this event and what it points forward to. This miracle is a signpost that points forward. Look at verse 4. Jesus told Mary, my hour has not yet come. And this phrase points forward to the cross. And as you know, we're in the second major section of John's gospel. The first main section was the prologue, chapter 1, verses 1 through 18. Now we're in the second section that goes to the end of chapter 12, which is the signs and miracles and ministry of Jesus. Okay, so we're in that second uh, section of John's gospel that goes into the end of chapter 13. And the next big section, beginning in chapter 13, is the farewell discourse and the passion narrative. And what that is, is Jesus' arrest and trial and crucifixion and burial and resurrection. It's kind of the next big thing that happens. And I want you to notice, how does this next section begin? John chapter 13, verse 1. How does it begin? It says, Now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come, 
To depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. And then we see Jesus washing the feet of his disciples. But that phrase we see again, his hour had come. So remember, he's saying right now, ma'am, my hour has not yet come. In the next big section, John 13, he says, the hour has is come. The hour's here. Okay, let's look back. Let's go back and talk about those six stone water jars and the interaction with the master of the feast. And what Jesus is showing is that he is the true master of the feast. Okay, Jesus is showing, I'm the true master of the feast. Only he had the power to rescue the situation and keep the celebration feast going, but his life would require suffering when the appointed hour was at hand to secure an even greater feast. Here's what Tim Keller again said. He said, yes, he is saying, I'm going to suffer. Yes, there's going to be self-denial. Yes, there's going to be sacrifice for me first and then for my followers as well. But it's all a means to an end, which is festival joy. It's all in order to bring about the resurrection and the new heavens and the new earth and the end of all evil and death and tears. Now, how do those water jars fit into all of that? So we're saying this points forward to this greater feast. Jesus is saying, I'm the true master of the feast and what I've come is to bring joy and life and abundance. But how do those water jars fit in? I'm glad you asked. Those jars were used as part of the Old Testament system of the ceremonial law. Now, how were people able to be in God's presence under this system? Okay, put your Hebrews hat on, and let's go back a couple of months. Okay, how, how were people able to be in God's presence under this system? Constantly cleaning themselves up through ritual washings and works of the law. This endless self-atonement. Ritual washing. I've become unclean. Now I need to clean myself up. I need to go do works of the law. I need to prove myself. That's how I come into God's presence. This just endless cycle of self-atonement. This treadmill that was there. And what it did, what this, what this Old Testament system reminded the people of is that God is holy and that atonement, cleansing, and pardon was still necessary. And many purification rites happened in the lead up to a blood sacrifice for sin. Now, why did Jesus start his public ministry with this seemingly quiet miracle? Okay, that's a, that's a good question. He's showing that something new has been inaugurated. Something new has been inaugurated. What did John the Baptist say? Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Something new is here. And Jesus is saying something new is here. It's different. Things are never going to go back to the old way. Here's what Kent Hughes said, By performing his miracle in these stone urns, our Savior was testifying that the old religious rituals were dead and that he was filling up the urns with new life. Isn't that good? I wish I could write stuff like that. Here's what Tim Keller said again, This centrality of Jesus' death is a most important insight for understanding the Gospels. Another is the meaning and purpose of Jesus' death, namely substitution. By choosing the ceremonial jars, Jesus was signaling something that the book of Hebrews expounds at great length, that Jesus fulfilled the whole Old Testament sacrificial system. Okay, what we see here, we don't really pick up on this, but what we see here is that empty religion is being replaced by grace and abundance. It's being filled up. This old empty way of doing things that could never fully atone now is being replaced with something new. Now, I say every Sunday that Grace is a church that seeks to know the full life that's found in Jesus Christ, and we want to share that life with those here in our city, state, and around the world. I say it every week so that you'll remember it. I say lots of stuff every week so that you'll remember it. Okay? Now, John 10.10, 10, which we're going to get to way down the line, 
Jesus said, I have come that they might have life and have it abundantly. Some translations say, have it to the full, to the top. Okay, think about the image of up to 180 gallons of wine in jars that are filled all the way up to overflowing and the type of feast that it points to. A feast of abundance. A feast of grace. A feast where you don't have to have faux row. You are not going to run out. It is a signpost of something new is here and it is going to be joyful and it's going to be a celebration and it's going to be abundant. This is the full life that Jesus spoke about and what I remind you of each and every week. That even through the hardship and suffering in this life, Christians always have the hope of an eternal feast to enjoy with their fellow brothers and sisters in the family of God, with their Savior Jesus Christ at the head of the table forever. You ever thought about that? We're going to sing a song that reminds us of that here in just a moment. We'll feast in the house of Zion. That's the great hope that we have, that even though this life may be tough, there is an eternal joy, this eternal feast of abundance that exists, and it's real. It's going on right now. And one day, someday, we get to join in that. What a, what a wonderful thing to think about. We see that Jesus came up to fill, fill up the old ceremonial law and replace it with a new way to approach a holy God through his blood as the true and better sacrifice, accomplishing in himself what we could never accomplish on our own efforts, which is full atonement for sin and an end to the hostility between a holy God and a sinful humanity by willingly offering himself up in our place. It points to atonement. This is atonement language. All of this was promised hundreds of years before Christ was even born. Don't believe me? Isaiah 25 verses 6 through 8. It says, on this mountain the Lord of hosts will make for all peoples a feast of rich food, a feast of well-aged wine, of rich food full of marrow, of aged wine well refined. And he will swallow up on this mountain the covering that is cast over all his people, the veil that is spread over all nations. He will swallow up death forever. And the Lord God will wipe away tears from all the faces and, and the repro reproach of his people he will take away from all the earth. He says, this is going to happen. This is the future. Again, here's what Tim Keller said. This drilled me. It's a long quote. Hang with me, okay? If Jesus Christ is who he says he is, the creator of the universe, come in flesh, then what we really have on the cross is God himself coming to earth and paying the ultimate price with his own life. He doesn't make us pay. He pays the debt. Some have called this the self-substitution of God. If someone hurts your rep reputation, really wrongs you, what are you going to do? One way you can respond is to go to the other people to whom that person has slandered you and ruined that person's reputation in return. An eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth. In other words, you could make him pay, or you could forgive him. And if you do so, you absorb that debt. You may lose face with certain people, but you give up the right to ruin his reputation. In short, you suffer. You cannot truly forgive a debt without taking it on yourself. In all this, we reflect a little of the nature of God. As a holy and just God, he can't just look down at us and say, look at you ruining each other's lives, destroying my creation, destroying each other. I'll just let it pass. No, God cannot just wish away that debt. And it's not because he doesn't love you enough. Actually, it's quite the opposite. God is so holy that he had to come in the form of Jesus Christ and die to pay the debt. But he is so loving, he was glad to come and die for you. Oh, read that quote. <laughs> it's like I got about 20 people I need to call and ask for forgiveness. Just drilled me. 
We think about all that Jesus has done. That He paid the debt. He paid your debt. He paid it for you. For you so that you could know Him. He paid it in full. And He asks us to forgive. Knowing what He has done. What He has done for us then compels us to do that for others. Even though it's hard. That's what He asks us to do. Now you remember that cup of wine that was brought to the Master in verse, in verse 8? Remember I said they probably dipped it out of the jar and brought it in a cup? Okay, here's what Matthew 26, 26 to 29 said. Now as they were eating, Jesus took bread and after blessing it, broke it and gave it to his disciples and said, Take and eat, this is my body. And he took a cup. And when he had given thanks, he gave it to them saying, Drink of it, all of you, for this is the, my blood of the covenant which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. I tell you, I will not drink it again. Drink again of the fruit of this vine until the day when I drink it anew with you in my Father's kingdom. Matthew 27, 33 and 34. And when they came to a place called Golgotha, which means a place of a skull, they offered him wine to drink mixed with gall. But when he tasted it, he would not drink. Then our Savior was crucified and became the vessel that God poured all of his wrath into that you and I deserved. See, here's the thing. This is where the gospel just makes, this is where the best news ever. Jesus drank the cup of God's wrath so that you and I could be offered the cup of God's grace. He fulfilled all of the law's demands so that you and I could walk in freedom, hope, and assurance of God's love. Romans 8, 1-4 There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do by sending His own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin. He condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh but according to the Spirit. Don't you see it? Is this thing on? Don't you see it? He drank the cup of God's wrath for your sin so that you could walk in God's grace and hear His voice. That is the best news ever. That you fully deserved it. And Jesus took your debt and drank it to the bottom so that you could know the smile of the Lord. I don't know what better news to talk about. That's what we can confidently say. Your sins are forgiven. If you are in Christ, if you trust Him by faith, that's the good news. Your sin debt has been paid at the cross. It's already been dealt with. It's finished. You can walk in hope and grace and joy. You can quit being so grumpy all the time. I don't understand grumpy Christians. If this is true, why in the world will we be grumpy? It's the best news ever. It gives you joy. You want something good you can tell somebody? Man, start with that. Evangelism is not that hard. Look, let me tell you how Jesus has been kind to me. Let me tell you about the hope that I have. Even when life's terrible, I can still get out of bed in the morning. Because the king's on his throne and my sin's been paid for through Jesus. That's a great place to start. Years later on the island of Patmos, the same John who penned this very gospel account would be asked to write something down as he was given a vision of the future glorious kingdom of Christ in all its fullness. Revelation 19.9, And the angel said to me, Write this, Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. Now, how does anyone get invited to this great future marriage supper? How do we get an invite? By grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, as revealed in the Scripture alone, to the glory of God alone. It's by faith alone, in Christ alone. Ephesians 2.8 and 9, For by grace you've been saved through faith 
And this is not your own doing, it's the gift of God, not a result of work, so that no one may boast. Romans 5, 1 and 2. Therefore, since we've been justified by faith, there it is again, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand, and we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. Okay? Application time, ladies and gentlemen. We're almost done. If you are here today and you are worn out from trying to prove yourself as worthy of God's love through your white-knuckled religious performance, I call you to repent. Repent of your self-salvation project and put your faith in Christ instead of yourself. Get off the treadmill of your good works and performance. You can't keep up. Repent. It's not what you do. The Christian stuff that you do is not what makes you right with the Father. It's Jesus. He's the one who makes you right with the Father. He's the one that justifies you to declare, to declare you are forgiven. That's what we're talking about in union with Christ. You're hidden with Him. If you're here today and living in open rebellion against Christ, I call you to repent of your vain attempts to be the lowercase g God of your life. And realize that without Christ, you have the cup of God's wrath awaiting you into eternity. Flee to Christ and put your faith in Him. You either drink the cup of God's grace or you drink the cup of God's wrath. And no one in this room, at the end of it all, will be able to say, Well, I didn't deserve the cup of God's wrath. Yes, you do. Me too, but for for the grace of Christ. And so if you are here and you are living in open rebellion against Christ, and you think, I don't need that guy. Stop. Repent. I am pleading with you as a minister of the gospel. Hear the good news and put your faith in Christ and Christ alone. It's the only lifeline you have. What's it going to cost you? Nothing but everything. It's a paradox. If you're here today and you feel wronged or hurt, consider the pattern Christ shows us. Christ willingly chose the way of love by freely offering himself with great suffering to absorb the debt of those who did not deserve it so that they could be reconciled to God. Remember, as I had to wrestle with this, your incalculable sin debt that Jesus willingly took on himself at great cost with great suffering so that you could be reconciled to God. It's the way of love. Now, I'm almost done. If you are here and you trust Christ by faith, I've got some really good news for you. If you are here and you rest in Christ, I have good news. By the cross of Christ and the grace of the Father, by faith you will have a future feast awaiting you in the house of Zion. It will be a feast of abundance. The food will never run out. Don't you see it? If you are here and you trust Christ, I have good news. That through Christ, this is your future. Again, Keller We can have an enormous stability because of this coming joy, the Lamb's Party. Every time you participate in the Lord's Supper by faith, you're getting a foretaste of that incredible feast. Even if right now you are in the midst of sorrow, sip the coming joy. There is only one love, only one feast, only one thing that can really give your heart all that it needs, and they all await you, knowing that you possess something that will enable you to face anything. We who are in Christ will one day sit together at this undeserved banqueting table of grace and say to our Savior, say of our Savior, He has done great things and wonder why we were ever invited in the first place. The greatest mystery of the gospel is not God's wrath towards sin, it is God's grace towards sinners. That is the great mystery. His wrath makes all the sense in the world. He's holy, we're not. We deserve it. The great mystery of the gospel is that He would ever show grace to sinners like you and me. 
And that is the great, when we think about this, we go, why in the world would I ever be invited to this? Who am I? Who am I? But Lord, thank you that you have chosen me in love. Like the bridegroom in the story, Jesus does all the work. We get credit for his efforts as his righteousness is imputed to us by faith. But he gets all the praise. I'm okay with that. And I hope you are as well. Amen? Amen. To the glorious praise of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, who has brought us to his banqueting table of love and shown unbelievable mercy and grace to sinful people like you and me. To his glory alone, we give it to him. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you that every bit of it's true. Thank you for this signpost that you give us, O Lord. It seems like such a small thing, this wedding feast at Cana, you taking a very simple thing, taking water, turning it into wine. But Lord, it points to so much more. It points to this feast of abundance. It it points to the cup of God's wrath that you drank, O Lord, to the very dregs so that we could taste the cup of God's grace. May we never take it for granted. May we look at this very familiar passage with a brand new set of eyes as we see, O Lord, that even as you were there at this celebration, you were thinking about your death. It was always right there in front of you. And the fact that you willingly went to the cross. You freely went there. Even though you didn't deserve it, you freely went to the cross for us. It should humble us, O Lord. Help us to repent of the ways that we're trying to save ourselves. Help us to repent of the ways that we're trying to just protect and hold on. And all these, they're just killing us, Lord. Help us to repent. And help us to trust you. Maybe even for the first time. And Father, may we flee to you day by day, trusting in all that you have done, trusting that your grace is real, your gospel is true, your word is sure forever. And if all of those things are true, there is nothing in this life that we have to fear. And you promise to walk with us all the way. Thank you that you're our good shepherd. And Father, we do look with great expectation with this one day, someday, O Lord, when we will feast in the house of Zion and we will say to each other, (laughs) He has done great things. Amen.